Well, good morning. We will be returning this morning in our study to an obscure prophet, Jonah, in the Old Testament. As I was thinking about the text this week, as I was studying it, I was struck that though we struggle in different ways and in different amounts, there is something within, I would say, all of us, something sinful that really prevents us from asking for help. And our pride fights against the acknowledgement of our need. And it happens on the most superficial of levels. No, I don't need help. I can carry that. Yes, I'll need four chiropractor visits and a whole bottle of Aleve, but I can manage this. I don't need your help. I'd rather sit here for two hours figuring out how to assemble this piece of Ikea furniture. No, I'd rather mess up this entire recipe than ask for help. I'll do it all over again if I have to. No, I don't need to stop and ask for directions. I like the four-hour scenic drive. Again, it manifests itself in a number of different ways and to different extents. We, but I would say we all struggle with this sin because that's what it really is. Though we can think of comical examples like I've just mentioned, there is something deeply insidious and malevolent about this attitude, not to mention self-destructive, particularly when battling sin and the judgment of God, the disciplining of God. We refuse to cry out to God for help, the very one who can deliver us, content to fight it in our own strength or to run from it, as in the case of Jonah. We've seen this in Jonah chapter 1. He refused to obey, so he runs from his responsibility. When God's judgment is unleashed, Jonah will do anything, anything to avoid calling out to God, even sacrificing himself to the sea. Well, this morning, we will move into chapter 2 of Jonah, where we are reminded that our deepest need is to call upon the Lord in repentance. So naturally, I need you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. I didn't misstate. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38, beginning there. We need to start there this morning. There's going to be an important reason. I hope it becomes clear as we continue. If it doesn't, I failed. But open with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. Then verse 38, we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees came to him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man for three days and three nights be in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now we've talked about this. The book of Jonah, as we've seen over the past two weeks already, is full of surprises. Jonah is the most unusual of prophets, the most unique of prophets, the only prophet that we have an example where he receives the word from the Lord and he gets up and runs from his responsibility. And yet for all of its 
surprises. Perhaps the biggest surprise concerning Jonah is that of all the prophets in the Old Testament, think of them, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so many more. It is a remarkable thing that the only one to which Jesus explicitly compares himself is Jonah. Now, there are implicit comparisons to many of the other prophets. We've seen those as we've gone through our study in the book of Matthew. But to explicitly compare himself with Jonah, this failure of a prophet, this capricious prophet, this prophet who runs from declaring the word of the Lord. Jonah is by no means a great prophet, and yet there is something Jesus says in Matthew 12, that parallels the course of Jonah's life in his experience and in what is to come in Christ. As it, is, as it was with Jonah, so it will be with the Son of Man. And it's here in Jonah 2 where the specific experience parallels that of Jonah. This evil and adulterous generation, Jesus says, who asks for a sign to this generation, Jesus will offer one sign, but only one sign. Jonah. Jonah will be their sign. Well, that's something of a surprise, to say the least. And so it is that Jonah becomes a very important book. Much more important than you might have expected if you had just simply read through the Old Testament. And so we return this morning, and you can begin turning there to Jonah, to this most unusual book among the prophets. We've come to the very point, the very place where Jesus focuses explicitly in his comparison of his ministry with that of Jonas. This remarkable comparison and some of the important questions it raises. You can read along with me in your Bible. We'll begin in verse 17 of chapter 1. Then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up, my life, from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Pray with me if, if you would. Father, as we turn once again in our study to the second chapter of Jonah as the 
second act is open before us, I pray that you would help us to understand and give us eyes to see this comparison that Christ draws for us in Matthew. What is it that is so significant about this comparison? What is it in the life of Jonah that we are to understand? How does it help us to better understand the cross of Christ? That's our plea this morning. We look for you to answer that as we open up your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your goodness to us. In your name, amen. I also need to confess that there is a great deal we are not going to cover in chapter 2 and going over these verses this morning, and yet it's somewhat necessary, I believe, because I think there would be a greater disservice done if we were to break this apart. It needs to be considered in its whole. We need to look at its whole. And so even though there is good reason for going back and studying, in fact, I would encourage you to do so, to go back through and study chapter 2 of Jonah, because there are many, many additional insights that you will find and you will glean, but it would keep us here all day. And so wanting to make sure that we accurately present this whole picture, we're going to skip over much this morning as we get to what I believe is the primary point, especially looking forward to Matthew 12. You remember the events we looked at last week in chapter 1. They brought us to the point where the pagan crew on that ship, on that Tarshish-bound ship, made their vows and made their sacrifice to the God of heaven, to Jonah's God, an act of true worship. They've been brought face to face with the reality of divine judgment. They saw the miraculously raging sea and had become aware of the reality of God's judgment. They knew this was a divine hand at work. And they got to know Jonah. They found this man asleep in the hold of the ship. And it was shortly after that that they learned he was fleeing from the presence of the Creator, the one who made the earth and the sea and the dry land. They had seen this Jonah fall into the hands of the God he had served when he was tossed off the deck of the ship into the raging sea. They had seen him engulfed in the forces of divine judgment. They themselves at the very brink of destruction. The ship thinking about breaking apart is the way the narrator puts it. By the wind and the waves of God's judgment, they at the last moment are themselves delivered. And at the end of Act 1 and verse 16, our attention is drawn to this group of pagan sailors, or I might say formerly pagan sailors, on the deck of the ship, who now turn to worshiping the God of heaven, who are now worshiping the creator of the sea and the dry land. They're now worshiping the God who they now understand is judge of all the earth. And as he makes himself known as judge of all the earth, his words meet, as we looked at last week, with a variety of responses. We observe the response of the pagan sailors who, once they knew they were what they were facing, they cried out to this God. They cried out for mercy. We saw the reaction of Jonah, this prophet of mercy, who remained in stubborn, sinful silence, refusing to call out to his God, refusing to let the words pass over his mouth, preferring instead death in the sea. And we closed Act 1 with these formerly pagan sailors worshiping the one true God. And Jonah? Well, Jonah has sunk beneath the waves. As the curtain raises on Act 2 of this four-act story, it's roughly broken up by each of its chapters, we find that the scene is moved from the ship's deck and the activities there to the depths of the ocean. 
Now, if you don't know the story of Jonah, which of course you do, but if you did not know it, and this was the first time you were hearing it, it would be quite unexpected that there was more to tell about Jonah. I mean, he's dead. He's sunk beneath the waves. Hadn't he, after all, brought down on himself the judgment of God? Had he not abandoned himself to the raging sea, to the waves, to the wrath of God? Seeking death rather than life in obedience to God? That's certainly where he left him at the end of chapter 1, verse 16. But as we read, as this begins in chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. A great fish. This is really the point at which the book of Jonah presents the greatest problem for many. And I think the attitude of most people to the book of Jonah really swings upon whether or not they can swallow the story of the fish or not. I told you I'm allowed a few dad jokes in here. And this is somewhat ironic. When we look at the incredible things in the book of Jonah, really this swallowing by a fish is not the most incredible thing here. Yes, it's unique, but it's not the most incredible thing. It's just the most unusual. I mean, we've become accustomed in reading from Genesis to this point, God speaking in the pages of Scripture. We've become so accustomed to it that we miss the marvelous, miraculous event that it actually is. That's the most remarkable thing here. There is a God who speaks, and He speaks into human history. He acts in human history. God also commands the fish of the sea, the worms of the ground. God controls all of creation as we see throughout this book. And when you've seen all these things, it's really quite unremarkable that he can tell a fish to swallow a man. And yet this is the hang-up for most persons. People seem to find trouble with this great fish. And it's intriguing to read books about the book of Jonah and really I should pause and say it's a good reminder to never judge the Bible by the books about the Bible. Rather, study Scripture for yourself. But if you do read some of the intriguing suggestions, some of the more bizarre suggestions, all throughout history that have come forward surrounding the fish in Jonah's story, it's really quite remarkable. Some want to consider all the possible fish options or zoological options that what this fish could have been. Was it a sperm whale? Was it a great white shark? Was it some other sea creature? If you want to know my personal opinion, find me afterwards. Some have questioned whether the Mediterranean Sea could really have contained such a monstrous fish. Some have suggested that the course of events are somewhat different than how we might normally read this story. In fact, quite abnormal. Some have said that Jonah was actually rescued by a ship that just so happened to go by the name The Great Fish. Others have said he washed up on shore. And upon washing up on shore, he was put into the nearest inn, which, because it was on the seashore, was named the Great Fish and spent three days and three nights recovering. You may have heard fully documented cases over the past couple hundred years of persons surviving experiences of being swallowed by a whale, even if at times only momentarily. And yet, despite all of this, all of the credible accounts of those type of things happening, all of the more ridiculous possibilities suggested, none of it sheds any light whatsoever on the book of Jonah. The events of Jonah are clearly miraculous. And if you don't believe in miracles, you won't believe the Bible. The Lord appointed a great 
fish. And if you try to find an explanation beyond the explanation that's provided by the narrator that God appointed this great fish, you've missed the point. If you think that any of those other things, any of the other stories, any of the other possibilities, throw light on the book of Jonah, you're missing the point of the book of Jonah. The point is that the Lord God of heaven and earth, the creator of the seas and dry land, he appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And it's mentioned almost in passing, as if this is an everyday occurrence. Now I say all that, and yet there is a problem with the fish. But it's not a factual problem, it's a theological problem. There's a problem that arises that's a serious question, a theological question, that centers on the purpose of God that is being revealed to us here. And perhaps it doesn't seem as important to you yet. Maybe you haven't even considered it, but bear with me as we follow it through, looking at chapter 2. Put simply, is the fish an instrument of God's kindness and mercy, or is the fish an instrument of God's judgment on Jonah? Interpreters of the book of Jonah are really divided into two camps at this point. And reasonable arguments can be made both ways. I mean, how many of us would really view being gulped down by a giant sea monster as anything pleasant or full of positive connotation? There's nothing immediately pleasant or merciful about being eaten alive by a sea monster. But add to that also, and give a, if I give a moment's thought and pause, and think about all the different places that sea monsters, sea creatures are used in biblical imagery. And I challenge you, from books like Job, Psalms, and Isaiah, and others, or perhaps go to the last book, to Revelation itself, that talks of monsters coming out of the sea. Pause and consider, can you think of a single example where some sea creature is used in a positive connotation? The beasts from the sea, the sea monsters, they do not carry a positive connotation in biblical imagery. They are evil creatures, and contact with them is not thought of in a positive term, in a positive manner at all. And so you put all those observations together, and that leads many to at least see, at least to seeing the fish and the sea into which Jonah was hurled as involving or being an instrument of God's judgment, of his divine wrath. And so they would say that chapter 1, verse 17 shows Jonah fully swallowed up figuratively and literally in the forces of God's judgment. But there are others who point out the opposite. The fish is, after all, the means of Jonah's deliverance. He is, after all, rescued by the fish. Isn't it clear that the prayer he prays from the belly of the fish is a prayer of thanksgiving? And isn't that evidence that, for Jonah at least, the fish is an instrument of divine grace and mercy? So which is it? If you'll permit me to tease you a bit and leave you hanging, we'll come back to that at the end. But I want you to have that in your mind as we look at the rest of chapter 2. Because going back to Matthew 12, if you want to understand something about the experience of Christ, there is something we must understand about Jonah. Christ points us, oddly enough, to the experience of Jonah. And it is odd that he would point us here. So we'll come back to this question again after looking more closely at the events of chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we find Jonah from the belly of the fish, praying to the Lord his God. And the prayer that comes from his lips, from the belly of the fish, it is, as many have noted, a prayer of thanksgiving. Some have called it a lament. 
And it is, but it's a lament that is coupled with thanksgiving. And usually those are categorized as thanksgiving psalms or hymns. And the prayer that comes from his lips, from the belly of the fish, is this prayer of thanksgiving. And it would have been very familiar sounding to the ancient hearers of the story of Jonah. Because the words, the metaphors, even the structure and the sentiments of this psalm are typical of many of the prayers we find in the Old Testament, particularly those in the Psalms. Jonah, as he is praying here, it's a prayer that we, if we were to put ourselves into the sandals of the ancient hearers, is a prayer that we can identify with. In fact, perhaps for the first time, we're willing to admit that we can identify with Jonah. I mean, Jonah's a confusing prophet. He doesn't make sense. We talked about that. We want him to make sense. We want him to act the way we think he should act. And he doesn't. Now, we don't want to identify with that, even though it may more accurately describe our own lives. But here, this prayer, this is easier to identify with. We've all had struggles. We've all experienced difficulties. We've all experienced times where we feel that we have been forsaken by the Lord. Here, we can identify with Jonah. He prays a prayer we might have prayed, or at least the type of prayer we might have prayed and maybe have prayed. Certainly, if you're an ancient Israelite. And his prayer, like so many in the Psalms, is a prayer that offers thanks to God for the experience of deliverance at God's hand. And look at this prayer. And again, there is a benefit in going slowly and taking a few weeks to pick it apart, but we're going to look at it in its whole this morning. It's really broken up into three parts, the structure as it were. It's got the first, the two main parts are verses two through four and verses five through seven that have a brief conclusion in verses eight through nine. And the two main parts are parallel to one another in two through four and five through seven. They they repeat a similar idea, a similar refrain, a similar argument, a similar thanksgiving. And this whole section two through seven is bracketed in by verses 2 and 7. Verse 2, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. And then that closing bracket in verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You see, the repeated thought bracketing this psalm is that God hears our prayers. Jonah testifies in this prayer, in this psalm, that we too, is something to which we too may testify. Certainly, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who can testify to the mercy of God, we can testify to the fact that God has heard us. Jonah says, I'm telling you, I cried to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I was in a place of dire danger. I prayed to the Lord and he heard me. And so Jonah testifies and So can we, if we share his faith, if we share faith in the one true God, we can testify to the mercy of God. Notice the terms that Jonah recalls, uses to recall his distress, the depth of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is a reference in the Old Testament to the world of the dead in the most general sense. Jonah is sharing that he was in the grasp of death itself. Death had its cold fingers wrapped around him, pulling him down. And even there, his prayer was heard by God. 
When a person prays, says Jonah, God hears. I can tell you that from my own experience, says Jonah. Even from the extremities, at the very extremity, when you are engulfed in destruction and judgment, when your life is at the edge of the pit, even there, there is a God, and it is the God who we saw in chapter 1 who has spoken. It is the God who we saw in chapter 1 as the judge of all the earth. It is the God in chapter 1 that we saw who is the creator of the sea and the earth and the dry land. There is a God, and it is a God who hears your sincere prayer and who answers So testifies Jonah. Now enclosed in that testimony between verses 2 and 7 is an elaboration of the distress from which Jonah has been delivered. On the one hand, the distress is inflicted by God himself. In fact, we read that in verse 3, and it's really Jonah's statement and a further expression of the sovereignty of God. This is all by God's hand. There may be intermediate causes. He may use agents such as the sailors, the wind, the waves, and a fish. But it is all under God's plan. In verse 3, For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Your waves, your breakers and billows. He is using language that, this is, if you've read the Psalms, this is very common language. The biggest difference is that where the psalmists often use it metaphorically and figuratively, he's using it both metaphorically and quite literally. For Jonah, this is quite literal. They actually have broken over me. They actually are engulfing me. He's experiencing this in a whole new way. The waves that engulfed Jonah, he recognizes, were God's waves. And Jonah is saying, do not mistake this God. Yes, he is a God of mercy, but he is also a God who will toss a man into the turbulent forces of divine judgment. Do not play with this God. He will do that. His experience was, as we see in verse 4, I've been cast from your presence. He sought to run from the presence of God, so God gives him a taste, just a taste of what he wanted. This reminds me of Romans 1. In fact, I can't help but my mind running there, where God turns them over to exactly what they want, and it proceeds from bad to worse, and so it does here for Jonah. Because when God lets him get a taste of what it means to be forsaken by God, particularly for one who has known God, well, that breaks him. That is when Jonah cries out. That's when he begs for mercy. That's when his lips are finally unsealed and he calls out, cries out to the God of mercy. He's refused to do it while on the ship. He's refused to do it when the wind and the waves were battering it. Refused to do it before he was thrown overboard. Refused to do it as he sank down. It wasn't until he felt forsaken by God that his lips were unsealed. And he cries out to the Lord. And it's then that Jonah experiences deliverance. Notice the words in verse 6, but you have brought up my life from the pit. Pit being another word for shield. It occurred in the psalm that we read this morning. Understand what has happened to him. He has found himself engulfed by the forces of God's judgment on him. That's where he was. He was sucked down into the heart of the sea. And it's there that he cried for mercy. Jonah's psalm concludes with a simple contrast in verse 8. 
The English Standard actually does a much better job translating this than in the New American Standard. The way you should read verse 8 is, those who cling to their worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. Those who cling to their worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. That is Jonah's conclusion. And we are reminded immediately of the scene from Jonah chapter 1, verse 5. Think about that. When the pagan sailors were on the deck of the ship, what were they doing? Clinging to their vain idols, calling out to their vain gods, their false gods. And was there any mercy to be found in verse 5 of chapter 1? Not a bit. They were fully aware the storm was something divine. They cried out each to his own God. They clung to their worthless idols, and it was all in vain had no effect whatsoever. Perfect picture that those who cling to worthless idols and gods forfeit the grace and mercy that could be theirs. Jonah's experience tells him that. Your experience if you're a Christian tells you that. And the Bible is telling you that now if you're not a believer, if you are someone who clings to the worthless idols of our day and age, if you cling to the worthless idol of material security, you cling to the idol of human achievement, you cling to the idol of entertainment, you cling to the idol of self-aggrandizement or pride, if you cling to any of those things or things like them, then you are one like Jonah describes, like a pagan sailor on the deck in the midst of the storm as divine judgment rails around you. And there's a great tragedy in that. This is where it should elicit our compassion not our anger, not our standoffishness, but our compassion. Because this is a great tragedy. We see it where the pagan sailors are on the deck of the ship crying out to their worthless idols, caught up in something that is quite beyond themselves, brought on by no fault of their own. While the true and living God was bringing the forces of judgment against that ship. And so there is something tragic today when we look at people in our culture all around us clinging to their worthless idols, because they are forfeiting the grace that could be theirs. The mercy that could be theirs. There's also something somewhat ironic here. The irony is that it's Jonah who's making this observation. Jonah, who we've seen from chapter 1, is not exactly the exemplary prophet. He's not the one that moms said to their little Boys who were growing up to be prophets, that's the prophet you want to be like. The one who in chapter 1 compared rather badly to the heathen sailors. The, the heathen sailors, even while they were still pagan, looked better than Jonah in chapter 1. The sailors who were quick to respond to the reality of God's judgment when it was brought to their attention, where Jonah has been rather slow, required quite a bit more judgment. But now Jonah's psalm draws a rather favorable comparison between himself and these pagan sailors where he says, But I, I will sacrifice with a voice of thanksgiving to you what I have vowed I will pay. Again, this is Old Testament language describing the true worship of God. And the point, of course, is this. It's the same as the pagan sailors at the end of chapter 1. Jonah has arrived at the exact same place as the pagan sailors on that ship bound for Tarshish. Because that's exactly what they were doing at the end of chapter 1 sacrificing and making vows. The difference is that Jonah has arrived here much more slowly after a dramatic scene of judgment by means of a great fish. 
First it was the sailors, now at last Jonah, having faced the force of God's judgment, have recognized the reality and have cried out to the Lord for mercy and have been delivered by the Lord and have responded in true worship to God. The lesson that is learned from chapter 1 and chapter 2 is found in verse 9. Deliverance, or we might say salvation, is from the Lord. Another way of saying this is deliverance belongs to the Lord, to no one else. Now, these verses, two extremes, have been brought forward. Two religious extremes, those who cling to their vain idols and those who call on the Lord. On the one hand, these pagan sailors. On the other hand, the prophet of God. We've seen a comparison and a contrast between these two types of persons and how they've responded to God. One rather quickly, one rather slowly. But still, nevertheless, how they've responded. I think there's a lesson here for us, a reminder for us. In fact, if we were to compare it, we might say, you can just pick any common pagan off the street in America to stand in the place of the sailors. And maybe you choose someone like a pastor to stand in the place of Jonah, someone who should know the Lord, who should be close to the Lord. You at least expect that. You have these two absolute religious extremes, the pagan and the pastor. And however extreme and absolutely extreme these two groups are, when faced with the powers of darkness, when faced with divine judgment, when the judge of all the earth casts a person's life down and they are utterly helpless, recognize their spiritual poverty and cry out to God before this judgment, when either the pagan or the pastor cries out to God for heaven, from heaven for deliverance and for mercy, at that point there is no difference between them. A pastor doesn't get answered any quicker than a pagan. The truth is that God belongs, or the deliverance belongs to the Lord, and he brings it to all who will call on him. That truth is going to be lost in, on Jonah when we get to chapter 4. How quickly he forgets, how quickly we forget. How quickly we are to elevate ourselves and not believe that some are worthy of deliverance because it's our salvation, not the Lord's salvation. But the truth is that those who call out to the Lord in sincerity for deliverance, their testimony will be the testimony of Jonah. And as if to demonstrate the truth of all of this, verse 10 concludes, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on dry land. Jonah was delivered. Now there are some interesting thoughts about the fish vomiting Jonah, as if it didn't have the stomach for this lukewarm prophet. And we won't get into that this morning. But I do want to return to the problem of the fish. Is the fish in the story of Jonah an instrument of divine grace and mercy or an instrument of divine judgment? At this point, I think the answer is a bit clearer. See if you agree. I think the fish is an instrument of judgment, but bear with me. We're not to conclude from the words of 117 that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and so now he's safe and sound. In fact, if you just read that verse, okay, I thought it was over when we went under sea, now it's really over. I mean, it runs against all common sense to immediately read that as any sort of grace or mercy. Certainly, he prays the prayer in chapter 2 and is there. There's something of a paradox because he's praying while on the belly of the fish. But like so many of the Psalms, it's a prayer of expectation. Jonah's countenance has momentarily changed because he has repented. And I do say momentarily because we see him return to his bad habits in chapter 4. 
This itself is a reminder that there's no perfect people. There's no perfect prophet of God and certainly no perfect pastor. But the solution is the same, to call upon the Lord to repent and return, to remember. But the fish here, I believe, is an instrument of God's judgment. And as Jonah is swallowed by the fish, he's swallowed by the force of God's judgment. However, there's a lesson that we learn, and this lesson is deeply profound. We learn from this chapter and its surrounding context, and it's this. The instrument of God's judgment is always, in the Bible, an instrument of His grace. Let me say that again. The instrument of God's judgment throughout Scripture is always an instrument of His grace. Now, what do I mean by that? If you were to read the various accounts where God acted in judgment, you would start to realize this is the case. Judgment by God is never a means unto itself. It could be. God is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. He could just judge and that be the end of it. But you see, he doesn't do that. God does, does act in judgment, but his action of judgment is always a means of salvation or restoration. And perhaps this sounds a little ridiculous. How could that be so? And certainly, don't misunderstand this. Don't begin to think that this is some sort of universalism that says anyone who falls under God's judgment will be fine in the end. That's not at all what we're saying. But if you look back at various incidents and times that God has acted against man in judgment, you begin to realize how true this is. Think back to the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. Noah's generation, they fell irreversibly under God's judgment. But the text makes clear, if you read through those chapters, that the purpose of God's judgment was what? to establish his good purposes for his creation. He judged the ungodly so that he might restore and bring about his good purposes in creation. To overthrow evil, not just for the sake of overthrowing evil, but to establish good. You go all the way to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation. And the judgment of Babylon is seen in, verses, or in chapters 18 and 19. And there Babylon is presented as a great and ugly harlot and there Babylon falls irretrievably under God's judgment. But it's at that very point that you immediately turn to a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, because salvation and glory and power belong to God because his judgments are true and just. His judgment, his divine judgment is necessary for justice and for salvation. The judgment of God always has in view the purpose of blessing. Now, whether you fall under the judgment or whether you fall under the blessing has a great deal to do with your response to the word of God, your response to the God who speaks, as we looked at last week, as we've already seen here in chapter 2. But it is nevertheless true that the judgment of God has this in view. It always has in view blessing and salvation. It's part of the Bible's revelation of God's purposes. Given that the world is a world of human beings who are in active rebellion against God and against his good purposes, if his good purposes are to be established, then, and they certainly will be, his word is yes and amen, they must involve the overthrow of all evil and all that is against God. And so then all divine judgment is the establishment of all righteousness. 
And perhaps what is most fascinating is that in the Bible, there are two remarkable occasions where the object of God's judgment is also the object of God's grace. I said a moment ago that you receive either judgment or blessing, depending upon how you respond to the word of God. But there are two instances in the Bible, and if you know of another, please come and tell me, but there are two that I'm aware of where at the point of falling under God's judgment, this same individual also falls under God's blessing and mercy. The first is Jonah. Here he is swallowed down in judgment by the fish, but by that same fish, that same manner of judgment, he is then delivered onto the dry land and experiences the mercy of God. But there was many years later, one greater than Jonah, who's crucified on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And far more than the experience of physical suffering that was involved, that one, Jesus Christ, as he died on the cross, was forsaken. My God, my God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do those words sound familiar? Expelled from God's sight. He felt the full force of the judgment of God on him. But for that very reason and due to his faithfulness to God, even in the midst of that, he was exalted and given the name that is above every name. As Paul says in Philippians 2. The first two chapters of the book of Jonah help us to see the great grace of God in the midst of great judgment of God. God is the God who judges and in the midst of judgment, he is the God who delivers and saves. Now by reference to this very book and the very incident in Matthew 12, Jesus himself focuses our attention on the cross and on his death. God is a God who judges, and that judgment was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But then if you see what is happening on the cross, at the cross, and what happens in those ensuing days, you see that to the Lord our God belongs deliverance. The message we want to hear this morning, the message we need to hear this morning, here in Jonah, as clear as I possibly can explain it, is simply the message that's brought to us through the example of Jonah. A message that's made more clear through the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That God is a God who judges. You may fall under that judgment. Even a believer can fall under the judgment of God. No, it is not eternal judgment. That is dealt with at salvation. But even the believer can fall at times under the judgment and the discipline of the Lord. In fact, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, you are standing at this very moment under his judgment. No matter what your life is like, you may have a very pleasant life by all external standards, and yet you are standing under his judgment. And that same God who judges is the God who has mercy on all. Every single person that cries out to him for mercy, that calls out to him, out of sincerity of heart, he hears and he responds. What happens when you pray? What happens when you pray to the living God? What happens when you respond to his discipline and to his judgment? You learn this lesson. You learn the lesson of your life. Deliverance, rescue, salvation, 
belongs to the Lord, if you will but call to him. This was the message of the cross. The day when great judgment rained down from heaven, when the Son of God took great judgment upon himself, as he was forsaken, cast away from the presence of God, it was at that moment that great mercy and grace was found. And it's offered to all who will call on his name. Do not be slow about calling on his name. Whether you are a believer who is walking in disobedience, feeling the disciplining hand of God, do not lift your neck in pride, but bow your neck. Call to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you've never recognized your spiritual necessity, your spiritual poverty, you are standing under God's judgment. It is a pitiful place to be. It's tragic. Like the sailors who cling to their worthless gods, unwilling to let go of it and take hold of the mercy of God that is offered. Do not be slow about calling to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder from the book of Jonah. It's a reminder of both the judgment and the mercy that is found at the cross. Father, pray that you would help us to be quick to call upon the Lord, quick to call for repentance, to remember the Lord, to not seek to do things of our own strength and of our own will and our own power and our own might, but to lean wholly and only upon Jesus' name. Pray this in your name. Amen.